0: As you know, we have a channel on the network called the NBN Seminar. On that channel, we put books that we believe will be of interest to people across all of our 87 channels. Today, we'd like to feature a book by Philippa Chong called Inside the Critic Circle, Book Reviewing in Uncertain Times. She talks about how books are reviewed and the challenges book reviewers face in these uncertain times.
1: I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Philippa Chonk, who is an assistant professor in sociology at McMaster University, about Inside the Critics Circle, book reviewing in uncertain times. So, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Um, this is, uh, I think, a, a brilliant book, and it's part of um, a, a really rich uh, moment in um, the sociology of culture that's, that's coming out of North America, which I, I guess tries to grapple with um, the question of how do people make judgments in culture? Um, and one, you know, really kind of obvious set of uh, people making judgments are, are critics. And I guess the place to start is, is why were you interested in, in critics? What you know, why are they important and, and why, why are you interested in, in studying them?
2: Yeah, so as you say, there has been a lot of growing interest in judgment, in cultural sociology. And as a sociologist, I've been really interested in questions around worth and worthiness. So these include things like, who or what do we deem to be worthy? What are the criteria by which we measure this? And also, who gets to do the judging? And in fact, critics actually grapple with very similar questions, but specifically um, on the topic of books. So they have the task of determining which books are worthy of reading or not. Um, They have to determine what the relevant criteria for making those judgments are, which is tricky in the absence of really any kind of objective standard of aesthetic quality for what makes good fiction. And many reviewers also question or have the question put to them about why they should be in the position of making those types of judgments, especially at a time when you can go online and find 500 other opinions. What makes their opinion stand out or particularly worthwhile? So what I do in this book is draw on interviews that I conducted with book reviewers from places like the New York Times or the Washington Post, and my goal was to describe how critics grapple with these types of questions throughout their review process.
1: I was re- really interested in that that idea about kind of grappling with, uh, I guess, for for those of us who just you know kind of read uh, critical judgment. Uh, there's a sense, um, that people will, you know, kind of engage with their subject matter and they're right about it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for some people it's a job, for some people it's it's associated with, um, other elements of of their work or their field. But, but you start, I think with, with a big, um, if I might call it this, a big theoretical idea that the the story here is about uncertainty Mm -hmm. and essentially, as you've alluded to grappling with uncertainty and there are lots of different kinds um, of uncertainty when people are making judgments. And, it, and it'd be good to hear, I guess, a bit more about that um, central role that uncertainty plays uh, when you're thinking about the work of critics.
2: Yes, absolutely. So the arc of the book really starts from the beginning of the review process, which is you know which books get selected for review, which critics get selected, and how do they figure out whether a book is any good or not. Then it continues on to how critics do the work of actually writing the review, and ends with some of their reflections on what they think the value and impact of their reviews are. But in telling that story, overlaid on top of it, I chop up the book into three sections that explore three types of uncertainty that also impress themselves on the review process in a way that's separate from just deciding um, whether a person enjoyed a book or not. So the first type of uncertainty I talk about is called epistemic uncertainty. And that really just refers to problems or difficulties regarding figuring out uh, the actual quality of a novel, given that reading and thus reviewing is so subjective. Uh, Social uncertainty refers to thinking about how an audience will respond to a review and how these responses can be unpredictable, which affects how critics write their review. And the third form of uncertainty is called institutional uncertainty, and this refers to the lack of clarity and coherence around what the meaning, organization, and future of reviewing is. And this really comes to the fore when critics reflect on the value of what they do. And while, I use the language of uncertainty. Um, I don't want to suggest that critics you know are sort of wringing their hands and not clear of what they're doing and making it up on the fly. Instead, the language of uncertainty is just meant to point out that reviewing really isn't a rote or routine activity and that there are a whole host of considerations and even dilemmas that critics confront and address in the review process that extend well beyond the pages of the book that they're reviewing.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we'll get into a bit later is is the idea of reviewing as sort of a a risky business, actually. (laughs) Um, You know, they they can have considerable... um, you know, negative effects if mm-hmm. if the process uh, I guess goes goes wrong. Um, but before that, you, you know, you'd mentioned or you'd given a, a hint as to the to the structure of the book. W- one one thing I quite liked w- w- was almost a, a kind of uh, a political economy of publishing opens okay. the, the book with this idea about you know how um, both editors and critics themselves uh, select books, um, you know, matching to reviewers or um, you know the kind of the, the, the process of of creating um, a critical review, and, and I guess the, the question that stood out from the early part of the book was, I, I guess, what what do we learn here about what kind of books deserve to be reviewed? Um, and, and throughout, actually, many of the um, examples and, and and the data that there is sometimes some real ambivalence actually about uh, the idea that some books deserve it, some books don't, some books have to be reviewed, some books shouldn't. This, this kind of thing?
2: Absolutely. So many readers may be surprised to learn, as I was, that it's not actually the best books that get reviewed or that are seen as the most deserving of being reviewed. And in some ways, I shouldn't have been surprised because if you think of it, there's literally tens of thousands of adult fiction titles that get published every single year. And it's a practical impossibility that review editors could go through every single one, figure which one is good and then select those to include in their review sections, it's impossible. Um, And more to the point, as one editor told me, they have a lot of other concerns other than quality that actually guide their decisions. And I go through some of them in the book. So for instance, um, one of the first steps in selecting which books to review is actually a process of elimination. And in particular, some genres of books really don't stand a very good chance of being reviewed. So, books that are in genres of general or historical fiction, the more literary types of books, they're more likely to be reviewed than, say, works of science fiction or romance. And again, this is somewhat independent of whether the book itself is very good. The little um, description of genre on um, the press release or on the cover of the book really dictates its odds of being reviewed in the first place. And additionally, there are some books that get reviewed not because they're necessarily good books as a criterion of deservingness, but because they're called what people describe as big books. So these are books by famous authors or books that have generated a lot of buzz. And many editors felt compelled to review these books, not because they're necessarily good, but because they were news events. So this might include books that are published by famous authors or books that otherwise have just generated buzz through publicity efforts um, or even information about size of advances, for instance. And so I write about this and other considerations in the book, but the point is that there's a, a lot of practical logistic concerns that drive the selection of book reviews that are not about just whether the book deserves to be reviewed from a quality standpoint. And I think one logistical issue that hasn't been written about much but is so painfully obvious is that whether or not you have an appropriate reviewer to review the book. And finding the right reviewer for a book was a crucial part of the selection process because when you have a book that you want to review, finding the right person, the right reviewer to evaluate it was seen as important for really the entire legitimacy and fairness of the review process that would unfold thereafter. So editors talked about um, making good matches, almost like a matchmaking language they used. And the idea was that you wanted to select a reviewer who was available, but also had the right sensibility or the sense of openness to appreciating a novel for what it was. Because if you sent a book to someone who is kind of more serious and the tone of a book is more lighthearted, or in an example I give in the book, you send a book about golf to somebody that hates themes about golf. They may end up disliking the book and giving a negative review, not because the book itself was a failure, but just because of this incompatibility of taste. So I outlined some of the different criteria that editors use when making a good match, which doesn't always work despite their best efforts. But one trend that emerged was a general tendency when looking for good fits or good matches amongst fiction reviewers to actually seek out novelists to review the works of other novelists. And even more importantly, many critics themselves describe their experience and work as novelists to explain why they thought they were qualified to review books and what they thought made them experts in reviewing fiction. And this type of framing for why they were qualified and brought on to review a particular book as novelists turns out to be really consequential for how they actually do the job
1: and i guess it also you know frames the uh again the potential risks and the potential rewards um of of, of doing uh the reviews and actually i mean we we might as well talk about that now because i think it carries on uh really uh straightforwardly so (laughs) in you know, this is a serious work of sociology, but but also, like at the same time, there is almost that kind of you know, kind of gossipy element of like, so let's hear about negative reviews. What happens when things go bad? You know, what um, about you know, kind of potential sort of scandals? And again, because you know, this this is a a, a really good um, kind of comprehensive analysis um, of questions about um, criticism. You you manage, I think, to both you know show I suppose the dynamics of uh, how a critic might manage a negative review um, when reviewers are allowed to, you know, kind of go to town on an author, you know, punching up, uh, as, as it were, but also actually the, the consequences um of the constraints on reviews and uh, and i think one of the terms you use is kind of uh, a conservative uh effect across critical judgments um that it's you know it's comparatively rare to see one of these you know sort of wild uh negative reviews so yeah it'd be interesting to hear both about the kind of the risks but also crucially how uh how risks are managed uh when reviewers are doing reviews
2: Sure. And so here we're moving squarely into uh, the second form of uncertainty that critics face. And this is social uncertainty, the inability to predict how audiences will respond to what's written in reviews and how that shapes what critics do. So there are multiple audiences for a review, right? You can think of the editor of the review section, you can think of the general readers, but one type of reader that really uh, loomed in the minds of critics when they were writing their reviews, and this might be because they're novelists themselves, is the person at the other end of the review, the author whose work they are evaluating. And when thinking about the person at the other end of the review, it led some people to play nice, by which I mean they might have read the book and felt that there were definitely some failings, but they would temper the intensity of their criticism, by doing things like including more um, plot summary, including more information about the author and other works he or she has done, filling in the review with this type of information to crowd out space for more evaluative, explicit evaluative, and especially negative comments. So why did they do this? Well, for some novelists and just reviewers in general, they were really aware how a novel Really represented maybe three, four years of a person's life. And it was difficult for them to dismiss it out of hand, knowing the kind of impact that could have on the author. But what was surprising is that one reason critics also decided to play nice was not because of the impact the review could have on the author under review, but actually the consequences it would have for them as professionals. So, speaking about risks. Many people mentioned that another good reason to play nice is because there were a bunch of social risks that could come to them if they were too cavalier in the way that they criticized a book. So what were some of the risks that they talked about? Well, there was a risk of confrontation. So publishing and and the fiction world, it's a small world and people run in small circles. So this would mean that if you wrote a bad review of somebody it's very likely that you might run into that person at some kind of publishing event down the line. One critic talked to me about a time where she wrote a bad review and years later she was at a party and the wife of the author marched up this broken figure to her and then continued to shout her down in front of everybody at the party. Um, Another risk is alienation. So When critics write up a positive review, it's a pretty nice, clean activity. You get to read a book you really like. You get to tell readers about a book that you really like. And, you know, in theory, the author is delighted to have gotten a positive review. But when you write a negative review, you run the risk of alienating or compromising your relationship with other people in the publishing industry. So let's say that if you write a negative review of a book, um, which is edited by someone that you want to work with in the future. If your review is seen as too negative, is it possible that that editor might not want to work with you in the future? It's not an impossibility, but it's uncertain. Finally, many critics expressed that there was a fear or risk of retribution. And so this would mean that if they were too explicit in their negativity towards a book, there was fear that the favor would be returned down the line. So this could take the form of the scorned author and his or her friends and family bombing your book online. (laughs) Um, It could also mean that the person might actually be in a situation where they get to review your work in the future, or maybe they're going to be sitting on an award jury down the line where you are actually the subject of evaluation. And as one critic put it very simply If someone, if you give a negative review to a writer and that person is on a prize jury, that person's not going to vote for your ass. (laughs) So these are all possibilities and people have actual stories of these things happening. And critics can't know with any certainty how their criticism will be received by the audience. And so as a way of getting around that, many people chose to just temper their critical comments or play nice as a way of trying to mitigate this type of uncertainty that they faced. But I I will say, sorry, but I will say all this concern about retribution and playing nice and hurting the feelings of other authors, all these considerations go out the window when we're talking about reviewers reviewing works by famous authors.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, I mean that—that's the kind of free hit when almost not the review is irrelevant. But you know, Stephen King, Margaret Atwood—you know, like the big names that are always going to sell, uh, but are, are also like literary events,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, as, as it were. Like um, you know, there is going to be a new uh, Hillary Mantel. um Tudor history uh, novel coming out in, in Britain I think this year and that will be extensively reviewed mm-hmm. um, but it won't matter because <laughs> the book will do incredibly well and will sell brilliantly um and and it it was interesting that not that the critics have the self-awareness because obviously people you know have self-awareness but the sense of you know that's kind of sense of like yeah we can sort of do whatever we want because I guess there are no consequences there
2: hmm yeah, as you say, there's some books that no matter what people write about them, and even if people didn't write about them, they're one of these big books that are going to generate chatter and are going to be read and are going to be sold. And so this was, this reality is part of the reason for what critics described as the punch up, never down principle. And this was the idea that if you are reviewing someone who's lower on the status hierarchy than you are, especially first time novelists, um, and you you maybe find problems with their book, it's an acceptable norm to sort of play nice there because, you know, these are might be new writers who are trying to find their footing and some critical reviews could really affect their chances of going on to publish future fiction, for instance. But when reviewing books by famous authors, these big books that we talked about, people who are really at the tippy top of the status ladder in the literary world, it's completely okay if not... Um, noble to go after them in a very direct way. So this isn't just about being really explicit about the failings of a book, though that's part of it. But sometimes the commentary goes well beyond that; it becomes more extreme. And to give listeners an idea of like what I'm talking about, I pulled up this 2010 Huffington Post um, article that compiled a list of the five meanest book reviews ever. So these are the types of um, punching up lines I'm talking about. So. There's a, In a review of Freedom by Jonathan Franzen by the critic B.R. Myers in The Atlantic, Myers describes the book as the novel is a 576-page monument to insignificance. Franzen uses facile tricks to tart up the story as a total account of American life. Um, a review by Harry Siegel for the New York Press of Extremely Loud and Incredible Close. Fowler isn't just a bad author, he's a vile one. Why wait to have ideas worth writing when you can grab a big theme, throw it in the kitchen sink, and wear your flip-flops all the way to the bank? One more uh, review of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stieg Larsson, by uh, the reviewer Susan Cohen. This is easily one of the worst books I've ever read. And bear in mind that I've read John Grisham. So (laughs) these reviews aren't just negative reviews. They really veer into the realm of meanness or snark, as I've written about. And they're also funny. But one of the reasons it's okay to laugh is because these reviews are typically aimed at upwards, at famous authors that people don't think these types of words are going to have any real commercial or professional, and sometimes people feel no emotional impact. And many reviewers felt it was fine to go in on famous authors for that reason. Also, the fact that it wasn't going to affect the success of their book. But I actually found another rationale for why punching up was acceptable. And it really has to do with how critics saw review attention being doled out in an unmeritocratic way, going back to the question of which books deserve to be reviewed. So many reviewers were critical of the fact that big books always got review attention. And it was because they saw review space as really a zero-sum proposition. That When you review a book by Jonathan Franzen, when you review a book by Stephen King, those are two books that don't get reviewed. There are two books by perhaps earlier, more deserving writers that could be benefited by review attention that no longer are going to be heard about by the public. And so if a reviewer was assigned one of these big books and it turned out not to be good, Many people felt that it was actually their obligation to really, um, very perhaps somewhat dramatically, draw out how the book was a failure. Because again, the argument is that perhaps it should be quality that dictates why books get reviewed in the first place. And by pointing out how miserable a big book is, it draws into question the logic and maybe the fairness of types of decisions editors are making
1: i mean it it tells us something about um and this isn't the way you phrase it in the book but almost the kind of like moral commitment um that reviewers have to defending book reviewing as you know um a kind of a a practice that they think matters and Mm -hmm. you know that i guess um sort of strategic use of Uh, of snark, of, you know, amusing uh, kind of negative reviews to say, well, actually, you know, it's a problem that this kind of um, literary system dominates uh, book production and actually, you know, more space for um, different kinds of writing, uh, you know, new and and emerging authors rather than just, you know, big names being given column inches. Um, I think it ties into the overall story that comes up at the back towards the the end of the book Mm -hmm. and this is you know a a kind of a a sense of a commitment to uh, defending book reviewing part of this is obviously bound up with um, maybe you know a kind of a professional identity almost Uh, but crucially there is this sense of book reviewing as being something that needs to be defended and and thinking about your your overall kind of um, approach here that I guess the question is what what kind of strategies do reviewers have to to defend the importance of book reviewing?
2: Right. So one easy way to police the boundaries of reviewing would be to set up some kind of accreditation system, for instance. You know, have um, some kind of licensing in place to really demarcate who is qualified to be a reviewer and who is not. But when I brought this idea to the critics I interviewed, I actually found there wasn't much support for it. And part of the reason was because... The idea that one could accredit a book reviewer sort of reduced the complexity of what it was to write a book review. Uh, many people were more invested in reviewing not as a technical activity but as an art form, and so it wasn't something that we could just check a box and say you can do it and you can't. And even more to the point, just because one is a book reviewer doesn't mean you're equally qualified or capable of writing a review of every type of book. So. Well, as a sociologist, I might think, well, go through these formal means as a way to defend the the niche that you occupy. I actually found that even though much of the book is asking critics to explain how they do what they do, there wasn't actually that much sense of defensiveness about what they did. And what I'm trying to say here is that while critics think very carefully about what they do and how they write up their opinions. This didn't necessarily mean that other types of criticism were getting it wrong. I think that a lot of critics expressed a sense of ambivalence towards say amateur reviewers of course and the sense that maybe those shouldn't be considered as reviews in the same way that theirs was, but the issue there is not how to defend the boundary of a book reviewer versus what we see on Amazon, but instead it was more of a philosophical challenge that presented itself, which is about how do you define the what is unique, what is the unique value that is on offer by professional reviewers that isn't being given by, say, amateur reviewers or even academics as well.
1: Obviously, like this lays open the question of so so what should we be thinking about as uh, the future uh, of book reviewing you, you mentioned um, the importance of um, how reviewers situate themselves in a world where like effectively everybody is reviewing everything all mm-hmm. of the time, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, e- even through, uh, met, you know, kind of metricized systems of, you know, uh, give us your feedback with a smiley face or whatever, <laughs> three- <laughs> you know, the kind of Amazon um, product reviews and, and, um, you know, those sorts of systems. So what, what what do you see for the future of this? Um, you know, that on the one hand, I think the book makes the case that this is almost a kind of crucial part of um, how the literary field functions, you know, both in terms of people's investments in it, but also uh, in terms of kind of helping the um, the literary field, you know, move along and, you know, discover new works and, and mm-hmm. things like that. But at the same time, as you say, you know, it, it's not like the, um, the people you were interviewing are suddenly manning the barricades saying, you know, we have to resist uh, and, you know, get right. a special basis for ourselves or, or whatever. So yeah, well, what, what do you think, you know, will, will we still be, you know, talking about? LA Review of Books, London Review, you know, the kind of critics pages of, of New York Times or Huffington Post or in 10 years time, or do you think it will be a very different system?
2: So I think that book reviewing um, is stubbornly persistent. I do. Um, and, and you can see that, you know, in the past 10 years as internet, the internet and digitization has matured, we see that certainly there are spaces where amateur reviewers can um, continue to prefer their opinions on books. At the same time, um, papers like, or um, journals like the New Yorker or, or even like the New York Times, they also are gravitating towards the internet as well, using that as additional space to provide additional book commentary, for instance. So I really shy away Or I'm not convinced that the proper way of thinking about the future of book reviewing is about whether one form will um, go extinct because of the presence of another. I'm not convinced in that because I think what we're seeing is that, if anything, just new niches, new entrants in the field have emerged. But what I do think the consequence of that is, is that it means that the extant forms of reviewing, again, need to articulate what is the their unique value in this reviewing ecosystem, which, again, includes amateurs, but also includes literary essayists and also academic. And that's what the final chapter focuses on. And related to this, something that people have brought up when I uh, give a talk on this book is like, They say, well, why did you use the term critics and reviewers interchangeably? Because it really annoys some people. And the reason I did that was because, well, first of all, there's no real consensus on what the definition of a critic is versus the definition of a reviewer. And I don't think that's a bad thing, because rather than making uh, the distinction between a critic and a reviewer a property of individuals, I think it's more useful to think of different genres of reviewing. So, you know, on the one hand, we have the most specialized kinds. Those are academic reviewers who write academic essays in special journals for academic audiences. Then we have literary essayists. These are people who write maybe in The Atlantic, The Nation, um, The New York Times, or the, um, the New Yorker. And these are people who are writing about um, a range of books, usually after they've been published for some time. And maybe there's a comparative element and they're writing for people who are seeking out specialized essays on literature. Then you have the journalistic reviewers. So these are the people that are the core of my study. Their mandate is to write about books as they come out for a general reader and give them a sense of what's happening in the conversation, as well as um whether some books are worth reading or writing reading or not. And then we have amateurs, right? This is the most general group of reviewers. They um, cover the widest range of fiction. They're going to cover the romance novels and things that aren't making it into the professional newspaper pages. And their reviews might be more skewed towards product recommendations. And, of course, people get upset because sometimes you get a review that says, oh, one star because the book cover was bent, right? So, the, I mean, there's all different. It's, the point is there's a different set of concerns with these different genres of reviewing. And I think the way to think about the future of book reviewing is, again, how is each one offering something unique? And another reason I don't think it's useful to think about, um, criticism, the powers of criticism as invested in like special people is because indeed you see that English professors who work in academic reviewing also cross boundaries, right? They cross boundaries and will write for the New York Times. Um, same with literary essayists. And indeed some amateurs have even crossed over into professional reviewing as I write about in the book. So in that wider field, the task is to say, what is the unique offer that journalistic criticism can give to the everyday reader? And so, laying that down, what do I think is the actual unique value of book reviews, as I understand it? Well, I think what book reviewers who publish in newspapers can do—that is unique from literary essays and is also unique from amateur reviewers—is actually um, make books newsworthy. So when you think of the mandate of a newspaper, the goal is ultimately to convey information that's seen as useful to citizens for understanding the world around them, right? That's what it means for something to be newsworthy. And our ideas of what newsworthiness is, is always changing. So there was a study by the American Journalism Review that looked at um, changing newspaper newspaper coverage during the 20th century. And they found that um, during this time, attention to local, national, international politics declined, but space devoted to business doubled. And also, the idea of what was newsworthy also opened up to include science, medicine, and the arts. So, I think when we look at the pattern of retrenchment in newspaper reviewing, when we see that standalone sections are actually closing down, what we're seeing is a questioning. Of the news value of books and a changing of our conception of what the value of books are and how they're relevant to understanding daily life. I'm taking a long walk here, so I hope you'll stay with me. But this really isn't, you know, this idea that, well, what is the value of books? That's not really contained to the issue of books. Um, We see that in the questions of arts in general, Right. We see this in the questioning of the everyday relevance of arts, whether it's expressed through cuts for funding in arts education or arts organizations. Um, there was that comment by the American senator who said something along the lines of society needs more welders and fewer philosophers. Right. Again, impressing this idea that um, humanistic concerns are somehow separate, um, maybe a luxury um, and too rarefied for really to be useful for understanding daily life. And even when I wrote this book, when you, know, when you asked me at the top, why critics, I had to answer this question to many people, my dissertation committee, uh, reviewers and such. And I was regularly given the advice that I needed to try really hard to convince other people how this book isn't just about book reviewing. It's not just about fiction reviewing, but really it's a, a convenient, clever case for studying something else for studying some broader and more important social issue. So all of this, again, points to how the status of the arts, the status of the humanities in general, and its utility for understanding daily life is really in question. And so I think that more than arguing for why a particular book is worth reading or not, the distinct value of book review sections is that they are a place where people can explore and make the arguments for how art, and themes in fiction are germane and are useful for understanding daily life and that they are newsworthy and something that can help us navigate uh, the world around us. And there was one critic that really made this point very effectively that I interviewed, and he compared what he did as a reviewer to reporting on political news. So he says that just as reporting on what's going on in Congress isn't necessarily going to make everyone a voter. Writing a book review isn't necessarily going to make everyone a reader, but both stories will hopefully make for a more informed citizen. And so that's what I think should be or can be a unique value proposition of journalistic reviewing and why it's good to have books and it's good to have book reviewers and why even in sociology, it's good to have books about book reviewers
1: you've outlined, uh, I guess a major project as well, <laughs> um, as, you know, a crucial defense of, of, of the practice that you've been studying. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I like to close the podcast by, um, asking people what, what they're working on next, which is obviously a bit mean considering how much work it is to write a book and, you know, how long the process takes. But I, I was really struck by that sense of, you know, a, a sort of, uh, a defence of, of, of the arts, a defence of the humanities. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that going to be, um, you know, or, or that, that idea of, you know, what is the value proposition here in the context of sociologies uh, that are concerned with value and, and, and valuation? So is, is that going to be something you, you're working on next or um, have you sort of like thought quite enough about values, valuation <laughs> and structure?
2: Well, I think... Um... My place in trying to argue for the value of art and humanities for understanding our social world continues, by virtue not of being an explicit topic of my next book, but um, definitely informs the types of s- case studies that I look at. But the new book actually does continue to look at evaluation, but rather than focusing on the people who make the evaluations, it's going to be a book that looks at what people do with these evaluations. Um, and it's a book called Feedback, and it looks at evaluations that are produced in three social arenas, uh, including Yelp, uh, for, and how, for instance, restaurateurs make sense of this evaluations that they get. Do they disregard it? Does it guide their businesses? Um, and the fundamental question is, we have so much evaluation being produced. What are we doing with it? Are we actually using it to improve our services or our teaching practices and what have you. And also, how is evaluation becoming a new way that we fundamentally relate to one another? And so I chose the topic or the title of feedback because there's a sense that we procure feedback to improve, but feedback can also refer to, you know, that sort of distortion that happens um, auditorily. And I think that might be happening to our social relations as well.